So good morning, everybody. It's great to see so many people here back in church as we sort of move into phase two of our plan to get back to life as remotely normal. Uh, As many of you, I'm sure, either figured or hoped, I'm going to talk about the topic of racism today. It is an uncomfortable topic, and to be honest, I as a priest, and I'm sure most individuals who are leadership in the church and Catholics probably should talk about it more and discuss it more. But of course, I think we have to talk about it today. I'm talking not just about Uh, anti-black attitudes or individuals questioning the value of black Americans. I want to talk more about racial injustice and systems of power, things that are institutional. It could be our justice system, but it can also be economic disparity, housing, education, the family, health care, etc. And we're going to have to admit that the roots do run deep. In our nation, possibly unlike other nations, we live with the specter of slavery, particularly in the South. And although black Americans have made a lot of gains over the years, we have still not seen in our nation black America achieving integration into the private sector domain of American life. For many, the deck seems to be stacked against them. And so the murder of George Floyd sparked what I'm going to call a revolution, like the nation has not seen since 1968. There are people demanding change. But there's one thing that's unique about it. Actually, there's several things unique about it. But one is this. Before, it was primarily African Americans expressing change, desiring it. But now in the protest, and you hear voices, both black and white America together. And for the most part, it is clearly not performative. People are angry, and they want to see things change. They want to see a quality gain. And so there's a sense, though, possibly a fear, that like in so many things today, Uh, This is going to blow over whenever the next big thing comes and the media decides to focus on that. But I I think a lot of people who are protesting and a lot of people who may be silently watching feel united in a sense of powerlessness. Powerlessness. Uh, The bureaucracy, the political system is broken and their voices are not going to be heard. Congressmen and women are not there to serve, but to retain power, to remain and stay in office. Years of promises really haven't seen significant change, a feeling that the democratic process has failed. Now, for some, though, sentiments run much deeper into a real nihilism, that America is rotten to the core needs to be discarded. It's a hopeless cause. I, of course, do not believe in that, and that's why we are talking about this topic. And so this week, even though I was on vacation, I was approached or contacted by several people, uh, nervous, confused, but questioning, what should the church do? What should Catholics do? What should I do? And so I spent a good part of my vacation time 
uh, reflecting on it, praying about it, and thinking about it. And I'll be honest, I don't have answers. I don't have any solution of how we can figure everything out. I'm not a political pundit or a politician. But I think as a, a priest, uh, and as Catholics, we do bring a very unique and real experience to this. As we saw over the course of the past 20 years, the exposure of the abuse crisis, where certain individuals were abusing their power. But worse was, was a system that sort of allowed it. A system that allowed it. So we have some opinion here, that I think a perspective that could be valuable. Of course, the first thing that we have to do whenever we deal with any issue that deals with ethics is we've got to examine our own consciences, look at our own lives to see what part we have played as individuals or as part of a greater collective and repent from our sins through our actions and what we may have done, but sometimes in our complicity or indifference. The conversion of heart and looking at ourselves before pointing the finger is always going to be the first thing we do. But in my prayer, I kept coming back to today's feast, what we're celebrating, the solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity, and specifically the belief that we have as Judeo-Christians that man and woman are created in the image and likeness of God. And so, because of that, that we believe all people are created in the image and likeness of God. We believe that the dignity of the human person flows from that belief. That all of us have dignity and value that needs to be respected and reverenced because we are creating God's image. And so ultimately, the issue of racism, whatever form it takes, is a human rights issue rooted in the dignity of the human person. Now, of course, this is going to be for another homily, but human rights come from God. They do not come from governments. And so if we can't acknowledge the presence of God, then the idea of human rights becomes a very precarious topic to discern and to discuss. But being created in God's image and likeness means something more because we believe that God is a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, united in a divinity. And so, because we're created in his image and likeness, that image is perfected when we live in communion and unity with other persons. Listen to Pope Francis. Our being created in the image and likeness of God, communion, calls us to understand ourselves as beings in relation and to live interpersonal relationships in solidarity and reciprocal love. We're called to live in right relation with other people. This is the definition and the basis of justice. But Francis uses that word solidarity. Solidarity. It is one of the foundational pillars of Catholic social teaching. And although it's somewhat complicated, basically we can define solidarity as seeing all people, rich and poor, of different races, from different countries, of different religions and ideologies, as brothers and sisters. That indeed we are our brother's keeper. And this image, or this theme of solidarity, was so crucial to the thought and the teaching and the life of St. John Paul II. 
And so John Paul II clarifies this idea of solidarity by saying that it is more than the feeling of vague compassion or shallow distress at the misfortunes of many people, both near and far. On the contrary, it is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good, that is to say, to the good of all and each individual, because we are really responsible for all. And so it's not just, oh, hey, I'm in solidarity with everybody, that we are actively working to achieve the common good and the respect of the dignity of all human persons. So let me make it more concrete. Make it more concrete for 2020. Solidarity means more than posting things on social media, which can often be just virtue signaling or performative allyship, not necessarily bad in itself, but it means standing face to face with other persons and listening to them. Face to face, in the same room, and listening to other people. And that's the word that kept coming to me. Listening. What does it mean to listen? That solidarity, that peace, that justice begins with listening to other people. I think that's what the protests mean. People want to be heard. They want to be seen. And although I'm not justifying the riots at all, Martin Luther King did say a riot is the language of the unheard. People want to be heard. They want to be seen. And we have the obligation to listen and to listen without prejudice. Put aside our preconceived notions, our political alliances, no judgment at all, but to listen and to be able to try to understand. This week, I reached out to a couple of my <clears throat> black friends, one a lawyer and one a priest, and listened to what they had to say. Particularly, the priest's testimony struck me that when he's out and about and his clerics, no one looks at him. But when he's not, there's all kinds of problems. I listened to or tried to listen to his testimony. And so it means sitting there, being with our brothers and sisters, establishing a relationship, trying to work to understand, and therefore coming together to find solutions and to take action. And so it's not just white people who need to listen to the black people, the black people need to listen to the white people. It's something more. And I guess this is my real key issue here. It's something that I noticed, and I think a couple of other people that I spoke to have noticed, looking at uh, the vast majority of protesters, whether it be in the protests that we had last week in Lafayette or throughout the country, a vast majority, besides being both black and white together, a vast majority of the protesters were young, in their 20s or even early 30s. They're the iGen or the millennials. And like anything, revolutions are started by the young people. And our young people today, polling shows, are the most opposed to racism of any generation we've seen in our nation. But what I'm doing today, even though if I was at 6 or 9 p.m., I'd be speaking mostly to that demographic. I'm speaking mostly to Generation Xers or even some baby boomers here today. 
speaking to another generation who, not because we're racist or not because we have these deep ingrained prejudices, even though they may be there, is because we don't understand. It's a different generation. I'm Generation X, and I, to a degree, do understand because I work with the younger generation every day. I'm not saying that I have complete and total knowledge, but I know what it means to listen to them, to give respect, to establish a relationship, and how important that is. And it's something that is not the easiest thing to do. Parents listening to their children or older generations listening to younger generations. This is indeed an issue of race, but it's also a generational issue. And the younger generation having an understanding that we need to listen to to try to come and understand. But it's not just listening. And this is the true point here. There's also dialogue. Now you hear this, if you look at the Trinity and we are called to image the Trinity, what do we hear? Jesus is the Word, the Word that comes from the Father. So it establishes not only the need to listen, but to that dialogue that has gone on in the Trinity for all of eternity, focused on the Word, the eternal Word. And so if we're going to really listen and have dialogue, it's got to go both ways, and all perspectives should have input. We've got to be open-minded. We can't shut down discussion. We're going to need to talk it out, to listen, to work together to find solutions. What the solutions may be, I really have no idea, because what we've been doing, if it's worked, there'd be a lot more peace. Things would be going a lot better. I can tell you that Marxism is certainly not the solution, but neither is unfettered capitalism. It might lie somewhere else. We're also going to see, regardless of how old we are or what our race is or what our political perspective is, both sides or all individuals may have to admit we're wrong in some things and the others are right, and we're right in some things and the others are wrong. We're going to have to be able to admit that we do not have a monopoly on the truth or the solution. Because the truth is... For concrete political and social change to happen, it's going to have to be generational. The millennials, the younger generation, want change. But unless I am wrong, it is going to take Generation X and the baby boomers with our experience, insight, political, and financial capital to bring about change. We cannot be opposed to each other if something is going to happen and we are going to stake forwards. And so we need to work for unity through listening and through dialogue, but I think also, and this is not something I want to sort of say bad things about or I want to be positive in speaking to this, we're going to have to avoid voices and venues that sow division and confusion because there are a lot of them out there. My best advice, avoid discussions and debates on social media. They really don't get us anywhere. That animosity, that civil war, spills over into real life. Talk to other people in person. Heck, avoid social media altogether if you need to. Number two, don't believe everything you hear in the news. 
We all know that news sources are often biased, and they're going to reduce things into political categories. This is much more than politics. We need to be the ones who set the narrative. Not the media, not other people, but we need to be the one that sets the narrative of how this will move forward. The people do. Number three, and very importantly, please, we need to avoid accusing or attributing motives to others, especially when it comes to expressing or not expressing opinions. People could, you don't know what people are really thinking. And they could be working secretly where you don't understand it or don't see it and speaking in different ways, not blasting their opinions on social media. Because I'll be honest, I've seen a lot, not just in the past week, but over the course of the past several years, of things and tactics that are too reminiscent of Maoist struggle sessions. We do not want to go in this direction. Four, stay focused. Avoid red herrings. There are all kinds of distractions. We can have some unity and some purpose in trying to resolve the issues. Let's not get distracted. And finally, cooperation, not competition. We've got to be able to work together as individuals, as a nation, on an economic level, on a social level, of cooperation uh, as opposed to competition. Now, in conclusion, I, if you know me, I'm not Pollyannish about reality at all. I'm generally the glass is half empty. And so I'm not saying that, oh, if we just listen, we're all going to find some unity and work together. I'm not some hippie. I don't know what the solutions are. I really don't know. It's going to take, though, work, struggle, sweat, and tears to come up with concrete solutions rather than just hashtags and things that sound good but don't produce results. And as Christians, though, this is what's important. As Christians, we believe and strive for a more profound and real unity than anything that is social or political. Jesus prayed that we all may be one, and we believe that that unity comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is the bond of love between or among the persons in the Trinity. And so... We can do all the action we want. We can do all the listening and dialogue. But our obligation is to pray. To pray and let our contemplation flow into action. To pray for a deeper outpouring of the Spirit so that we can move from simple justice to love. To just giving others what is their due. To truly loving them because there's no solidarity without genuine love. And so we have to have a commitment to pray for peace, for unity, and for the development of concrete resolutions. And in conclusion, many of you may not know this, but Our Lady of Wisdom was integral for the desegregation and the integration of blacks into SLI at the time, when it was happening in the late 50s. In fact, the Newman Club was the first to integrate. Monsignor Segur was a very powerful force in doing that. There are tensions elsewhere, potentially on campus, 
but there was solidarity here. I pray that as parishioners, as students, as different generations and individuals from different states of life and races could be a great example of solidarity and prayer for others and for our nation. Amen.